This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the podcast that loves a little bit of a dip into the fool mailbag. I'm Scott Phillips, and with me, as always, Dr. Nirban Mahanti. Good day, Doc. Good day, Captain. How are you? Mate, well, I'm not sure. You're not sure? Well, because I'm not really here. Neither are you. Yeah, that's true. This is last week. Well, uh, it's now, but it was last uh, week then. We or te- it was next week then, but it's now last week. We are teleporting. We are teleporting. Which is but, awesome. <laughs> I thought teleporting was in space rather than time. Can um, teleport in time? Uh, We're time traveling. Time traveling. Time traveling is the right word. Nice. I like it. Fools, we are... Uh, <laughs> We're not here. In fact, we have a meeting today of our Motley Fool Platinum members. So we aren't here, but we're still here because we recorded this in advance. So, mate, I won't ask you what you thought of this week's RBA decision because rates definitely either went up or, or down or stayed the same. I think we can agree on that. That We can definitely one, agree. One of those things definitely happened this week. <laughs> and uh, and as a result, we're either happy, unhappy, or nonplussed. That's true. Fair to say? Yeah, that's definitely what, true. You're, you're going to be nonplussed or happy or unhappy? What oh, do you think I, you'll be? I will take a rate cut. Why not? Take but I think cut. I take a rate cut, but I think it's the wrong decision. Okay. You know, I'm willing to take some pain for the right decision. <laughs> for the greater good. For the greater good. I like it. I like it. Well, I wonder what happened. We'll, we'll find out in due course. In fact, we will know by now. We just can't go back in time and put it in the podcast. <gasps> well, we'll talk about it in the following. Should we move on? Yeah. All right. We're going to go through a whole heap of mailbag this week, fools. So this is a, we kind of love mailbag, don't we? And not we only because it. you wonderful listeners tell, say great things about us, but that doesn't hurt either. Let's get in. We've got heaps of stuff to talk about. We've got portfolio construction. We've got uh, Chinese infant formula companies. We've got West Farmers. We've got Challenger. We've got a whole heap of stuff to get through. So no matter what your interests, fools, I think you'll find something in this week's mailbag that is right up your alley. Let's get going, mate. we got a question from Facebook. We don't get many questions from Facebook, but we got one from Lachlan on Facebook. And he said, hi, guys, long-time reader and now podcast listener. Excellent. Thank you. Insert mandatory praise of the podcast here. And why does he think it's mandatory? It's not mandatory. He could, uh, all he needs to do is just say good things about me. Not me? Well, at least that's, uh, I'm just talking for myself. <laughs> well, I'm the bloke who puts the mail back together, so it helps you. Uh, okay, come on. You don't know how many I filter when they say good things about you and bad things about me. Uh, that's, that's probably there could, be a whole, there could be a whole lot of those somewhere in a, in a, in a rubbish bin <laughs> somewhere in a full HQ. Um, <laughs> Industry mandatory praise. We, look, we're, we're, uh, we're human. We like praise, don't we? Oh, you'd love it. It's not, it's not necessary. It doesn't hurt. It doesn't hurt. Lachlan says, I was wondering what you think of Bellamy's. ASX ticker BAL. They have just been approved for supplying China with baby's formula, but the markets seem unimpressed. I am puzzled. I would love your opinion. And Doc, you're a bit of a China watcher. You're a bit of an infant formula watcher. Mm-hmm. Bellamy's, now to be, to be fair, Bellamy's shares did jump meaningfully on the announcement, about 15, 16%, I think, on the day. Am I right mm-hmm. in that one? Mm-hmm. I don't know what they've done the last week, and neither do you, because we're not here. Mm-hmm. But in any case, they've kind of, they're still decently below the pre approval kind of the, the highs in the past, right? Mm. They've been, well, they were as high as 20 bucks at one point, I want to say. Yeah. Um, fell below 10. Uh, they've jumped 16%, but still to reasonably, again, high levels, depending if you bought cheaper, lower levels if you bought more expensively. Either way, is the market undervaluing, underrating the Chinese approval of the shares cheap or expensive right now? So there's a little bit of clarification here, right? So it, when I read the announcement from Bellamy's, what was not clear to me was, so there's this thing called SMAR, which I can't right now on the top of my head remember exactly what it mm-hmm. does, state something, something, something. Right. But it's basically the regulatory approval that you need to sell Chinese-labeled stuff, infant formula. I'm going to call it state marketing approval regulation. That's exactly what it is. <laughs> It's not. Uh, Maybe maybe that's what it is. So you need that uh, certification, registration, to sell the infant formula, Chinese labeled, in mother and baby stores 
in China. Right. So you can send in the Australian stuff in English. Via via Tmall or any of the other right. online things. Kind of Daigu stuff. Or if yeah. you want to do the traditional channels, the, the equivalent of, of selling it through Woolies and Coles here, yeah. you would have to have the Australian, like the Australian FDA regulations, yeah. right? We can jump online and buy some dodgy stuff from the States if we want. If we want to buy the good stuff that's approved by Australian regulators from an Australian shop, then you need that regulatory approval. Bellamy's have got that now. Well, see, this is the thing which was not clear to me. What was clear, what appeared, what the news, mm-hmm. it, you know, and I might be incorrect on this, but I thought the news basically said that uh, the producer, whoever is going to actually produce it, yeah. the producing plant, that actually has Chinese regulatory approval tick, but it does not necessarily mean, and then a lot of these things are very confusing, <laughs> uh, it does not necessarily mean that actually the Bell- Bellamy's brand actually has the approval. I think oh, both okay. need it. And I think that's part of the confusion. So it's part of the way there, but not the whole way there. Uh, that's, that was my interpretation. I think there's okay. only one producer in Australia who has, uh, or one brand which has the approval, and that's A2 Milk. Okay. Right? The A2 Milk definitely has SMAR. But I'm not so sure. But I mean, you know, I find it hard to believe the plan will be approved, but the Bellamy's brand won't, right? Unless the Chinese government are playing funny buggers, it seems like a relatively straightforward. So, so a lot of these, uh, there are a lot of these producing um, factories, let's yeah. call them, yep. which have the necessary approval. But that does not necessarily mean, at least in my view, yep. that uh, the brand has been approved. You know, it, oh no, sure, but but it, it's not like uh, oh, I can't imagine oh, yeah, yeah. where oh, the yeah. Chinese government would say, well, the, the factory's okay, but we're not going to approve the brand, right? It might be a process, but it seems yeah, in, so in, in any reasonable scenario, again, the Chinese government may be different, but you'd think this would be relatively straightforward. Well, you would think that it would be relatively straightforward given that so much of that stuff is already being sold through the online channels, but it is not like with, uh, you know, a lot of these things I think the regulations have not been clear and the processes may not have been clear. So I think there's a little bit of a hoop jumping. I'm not saying that they're not going to get the approval. What I'm saying is um, I I think the process itself are a bit unclear and maybe the... (laughs) That's definitely true. (laughs) because, Because all these companies have been has been jumping through this hoop for some time. Right. Right. And, um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, what do I think? Uh, so, you know, so the market did, I think, respond to it. Um, mm-hmm. And, I th- you know, you need to see, I mean, that's approval is one thing. You need to then get get on the ground, have the distribution, <laughs> yeah. then make the sales happen. So, you know, I, I think maybe the market is just waiting for some uh, traction. Yeah, I, think that, I think that's fair. I think that's yeah. fair. It's a, it's a buy for us at, at Share Advisor, I should uh, declare. And I think that it, there's a pretty good probability that we end up being successful. Now, that may not be the case. There is definitely risk, as you say, Doc. So that's that's something we're, we're very mindful of. We're certainly not banking any of those gains just yet. We're kind of pleased to see the, the approval come through for the factory. Time will tell whether the, whether the products get approved in China. I, it, it seems very, very strange to me, other than for political reasons, that it simply wouldn't be approved. Right? There's, no, there's no good reason why... The product meets Australian standards. The Chinese standards, to my understanding, are no harder in terms of the actual food safety components. Maybe the Chinese government wants it. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe there's something else going on. But broadly speaking, you would imagine that you know one of Australia's better known and, frankly, um, higher market share providers of baby food, there's no good reason why it wouldn't be approved in China. But strange things have happened. Yeah, I, I agree with that. You know, it's just, I think it's a question of time, right? I and mean, the market's kind of scared, right? I think we should also always got to remember there's some, there's some or there's my view, there's some element of kind of sentiment in this one, right? The yeah. sense that, you know, the market's been bitten by Bellamy's in the past. It's not particularly excited about Bellamy's right now. People who want to play the infant formula boom are probably looking at bubs or looking at A2 or something else. So to some degree, there is an element of kind of fundamentals, which is that approval and sales. And there's an element of just kind of market kind of satisfaction or otherwise, right? If Bellamy's is not so sure, 
maybe your agent does have that approval, so hey, why not play A2? Or yeah. maybe Bubs are smaller with greater growth pinch, so hey, maybe we're not play Bubs. At some level, a little bit like we talked last week about Flexi Group and, yeah. and Afterpay, slightly different business, of course, very different businesses. But um, to some degree, there's an element of investor interest of like, yeah, okay, fine, it's been approved, but I'm happy enough with what I've got here. Or if I was going to have an exposure to this sector, I've already got it anyway, right? Yeah, I think I think you're right. I mean, you know, in the long term, I, I would think that they would all get approval because, I mean, you know, it's... Yeah, they're all being produced locally. They're right, all being, yeah. So it's it? you know, and you know, people are actually already buying the stuff, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> that's right. So it's one of those things where you know, people are actually buying. You know, why don't you just make it easier for people to buy? And it's right? something. Yeah, that's so. right. If you're the government, you're going to say, well, they're getting it anyway. We might as well get it through the the, the proper channel. Show we're a big grown-up economy. Probably get some tax revenue from it anyway. Exactly. All the stuff that comes with it. It makes more yeah. sense for the Chinese to regulate and, and and manage the sale process rather than have it coming through the grey market. Yeah, I, my my just general sense was that this whole process has been a little hard and tough and difficult. To to navigate for companies and and, yeah, and I think that's yeah. just you know and I don't know why maybe there are political mm. ramifications maybe it's just a reorganization of the processes maybe you know yeah. all sorts of things yeah, so yeah. again yeah but I think yeah you're right to say that you know the probability that they're going to get the approval and and so, you know and any other producer for example is going to get the approval is probably pretty high yeah if, including yeah. international uh, and the international the yeah, yeah yeah it's not it's not just you know if, if you're producing Nestle and you're producing yeah. it. Yeah, I think you'd get it. Fair to say, the the only the only watch out I would I would throw in just very quickly as we wrap it up is is the question around just the, the kind of the geopolitical realities. So, for example, we know India has particular limitations around uh, foreign companies having share ownership, for example, of, of yep. Indian companies. Um, it's not impossible that um, Australia has its own foreign investment review restrictions. By the way, now this is not foreign investment necessarily, but it wouldn't be the first time a country said, no, no, we're not going to let too many infra formula companies in because we want to support our own industry, for example. So there are certain circumstances under which the political realities might be. That they say, well, no, we want we want the Chinese market that, or the Chinese industry to have some of this market, and so yeah. we'll restrict the number of players we're prepared to admit. Um, again, Australian banking is a bit like that, right? There's only you know, the four pillars can't merge, and there's only a limited amount of international yeah. competition because of that that, that circumstance, because there are broader. In theory, geopolitical reasons, or simply just straight out political reasons, or public policy reasons, why you might want some different scenarios. So there's there's, a, there's always yeah. a potential uh, for that to be the case. I don't think it's likely. I don't think you yeah. do either. But we should also just acknowledge that it's not not necessarily a pure yeah. food safety question. To yeah, be and and they actually have limits on the number of sub brands within a big brand that right, you can actually right. register, right? So you know, if you have level one, level two, level three, level yeah. four, and you have like level twenty, they might not give you twenty because you exactly. know, again for different reasons. So, but, but yeah, I think. Right Rationally thinking, I think you would say that yep. should happen. Yep, agreed. Motley Fool Money. Financial advice for real people, not trust fund hippies. Sign up for the newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. A question from someone who identifies themselves <laughs> on Twitter as Motley Fool Fanboy. I assure you that's not, well, it's not me, is it you, Doc? Oh, definitely not. You're not, you're not pretending to be you? And, no, no, it's definitely, it's somebody's really a fan. Is that cool? Yeah. I well, like I mean, we have a few fans, I thought. We have a few fans. Yeah, we have a few fans. Not just because we ask you to say nice things about us. No. Do you reckon he changed his Twitter handle just so he get his, his uh, question read out in the podcast? He Did he give us a praise? I think he did. Well, I said, he calls a fanboy. It's hard to be... It's hard to be... It's hard, hard to get more praise than actually changing your name to actually suggest the... The preference. Oh for well, them. I like it. All right. So assuming it's not, <laughs> assuming it's not you and it's not me, and maybe it's not one of our, one of our team. Although it could be. Molly um, <laughs> Full Fanboy on Twitter says, "Hi Scott and Doc, really enjoying the podcast." And then between stars, additional praise. It's kind of, I don't know, mate. I feel like we're being taken advantage of here. No, you've actually got, but you actually got to give us the praise. You can't just say insert praise here, right? We actually want you to, you know, we're 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 
they're all very narcissistic, but we'd, it'd be nice to actually have actual praise, wouldn't it? That, that is probably true. It's just saying additional yeah. praise so, enough to kind of keep us happy. Yeah, so maybe we should put the, you know, the new hurdle is, you know, look up the dictionary, come up with some really nice <laughs> praise for us. Adjectives uh, welcome. Yeah, adjectives welcome. <laughs> <laughs> or, 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 you know, just do a search on Bing. Uh, a search on Bing would be good. Do a you search on find, Bing. You won't find any results on Bing. Maybe that's what he's <laughs> additional praise. Maybe that's what he searched for and all he got was additional praise. <laughs> all right. <laughs> all right. So, so my little fanboy, <clears throat> excuse me, I recently started my invest. Uh, Investing. Start again. I recently started investing. My largest holdings are West Farmers, Challenger, and Seek. Should I focus on adding companies in different sectors or focus on the best investments regardless of sector? I love portfolio questions, mate. I know you do too. Mm. Kind of one of those, you know, we talk about stocks a lot. And if, if you're kind of designing an investing pyramid, the first is kind of just getting the bottom level is getting started, right? Just doing something. The second is making sure you understand what you're investing in, kind of creating a portfolio. And the last thing is trying to pick the absolute winningest stocks, right? Now, we would say our business is based at, that, at the top of that pyramid, and that's a really important thing to try and do. But we're, we're much happier, much more excited by people who just literally start investing and getting going. Frankly, if you start young enough, you can afford to even lose to the market and still make a very, very large nest egg out of that just because you're investing regularly, compounding your money, letting that stuff do its thing. So, um, frankly, we are we are much more excited about people who start investing than the way you're picking between two stocks. Not that we don't love that as well, um, but the the kind of you know taking advantage, taking control of your financial future, I should say, is just so valuable and super important. So, well done, Motley Fool fanboy. Congratulations on getting started. Mate, he owns, or she owns, no, fanboy, he, um, owns West Farmers, Challenger and Seek. So should Motley Fool fanboy focus on adding companies in different sectors or just the best investments regardless of sector? What say you? Well, well, I, I think we, we generally say, you know, you should try to get to 15. That gives you 15 different companies, yep. um, you know, and 15 different Relatively companies, quickly. Right? Relatively quickly, which gives you um, a nice diversification. And yeah, you want to get, you don't want all of them to be in one sector. You want 15 bank stocks? Yeah, don't want 15 bank <laughs> stocks. Uh, although, you know, the person saying this, you know, <laughs> I probably have like 70%, 80% of my money on, in tech stocks. Mm. So, I mean, that, that is, is concentration. So, again, depend, you know, depends on the type of risk I, you want to take. I would argue that tech isn't really a sector. You know, because tech is everywhere. Yeah. Well, it's also the fact, yeah, just because they're tech enabled. If you've got, let's pick in a couple of Australian companies. You've got Afterpay and Cochlear, and give me something else. Um, take uh, Neomap. Neomap. Right. They, 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 they might be tech, but they're not. I mean, they're different in different, very different industries. Right. Right. Yeah. So yes, yeah. yes. On a, on a total yeah. level, the prices of all tech companies might be hit or or go up yeah. if things are changed. Yeah. So that's a good. Point. But yeah, yeah. So, so I think if, as long as you do that, I think yeah, you want to get to fifteen, get diversification, and then basically you know put the money in those fifteen. Really good companies. I, I mean, I'll say that you know you've got nice ballasty type of companies to start off with. Yep. That's really really positive. So what, I'm going to stop you there. What do you mean by ballasty, mate? What what is what what is it about them that's ballasty, and why is that worth doing? Well, I mean, you know, these are big companies with solid balance sheets, with earnings that okay. they are. You know, they've got. You know what I would call? Maybe you can call it moat. That you know they have mm-hmm. staying power. Yep. Right. So these are not speculative investments. You know, the Seek has a staying power. It's you know, it's right. it's the primary portal in Australia. And so, in your nautical metaphor, the ballast is the thing that keeps the ship kind of and can set, settled in the yeah. water nicely. Doesn't get blown around too much by the wind. Exactly. A good starting point to build a, a good base of a yeah, portfolio. Yeah, and and, then, and they can still deliver you growth, right? I mean, I'd say right, that you know, right. for if you're if you're into annuities, then Challenger is like the go-to company mm. here, right? Uh, and yeah, ninety plus percent market share, I think. Ninety plus market share, and you, you know, you would not expect Challenger to. 
to like triple earnings or like, you know, it's not going to double revenues, but, you know, it's slow and steady over a long period of time, it should do okay. Right. Right. And it should not, not just okay, probably do much better than okay. Yep. Um, you know, and the same sort of thing, you know, one could say about West Farm. So I think I really like that, you know, find good companies, great companies that you can invest in, uh, get to 15 as soon as you can, because mm-hmm. that helps you sort of avoid some of the market's volatility that comes, you know, natural. It's part of investing in the market. You will never get rid of it, but, you know, you can... Uh, ameliorate some of that mm-hmm. via having fifteen. Uh, that's what I would say. Nice. I, I I tend to agree with that, man. I think I think you know we say fifteen as quickly as possible, and this is this is where you know we talk about investing, and there's 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 kind of the theoretical investing approach, and then there's the re, the reality, right? The, the almost the behavioural approach, if you like, or just simply the real world approach. There's no need if you're going to get to fifteen eventually. There's no need to do it fast for the sake of it. There's, you know, you could have you, you could buy one company a year fifteen years. Or you can buy shares in all 15 companies in smaller amounts every year. After 15 years, you've got the same amount of money in the same number of companies, right? Yep. There's no there's no kind of rational, purely kind of, you know, Vulcan-like, if you're a Star Trek fan, reason to do that just in, in and of itself. The reason we say get to 15 quickly is because we know that, particularly new investors, if you buy two companies and one falls by 15% tomorrow, your portfolio is going to fall, assuming they're equal weights, by 7.5%, right? That can feel mm-hmm. really, really ugly. If you're, if you're a new investor, you're thinking, well... I thought I'd start investing. I thought I was going to make some money. Now I'm down 15% of this one company that I bought. Maybe it's the first or the second company you bought. Maybe this investing caper isn't for me. This feels scary. This feels tough. This feels volatile. I don't like it at all. But I'll put my money back in the bank. And and that can that can just simply hit your emotions. Far more than your, your finances don't matter in the first year of investing, right? Unless you're investing a lump sum of the only cash you're ever going to invest. There's every chance, like Motley Fool family, you're going to be adding to your portfolio for hopefully decades to come. So... At a financial level, on a, on a future you level, it actually doesn't matter, right? Just the movements are, are almost immaterial, except that we want you to feel comfortable, we want you to enjoy the process, and to be able to kind of you know emotionally manage the volatility of the market. And that's why we say get to fifteen as quickly as you can. I think that's really really solid advice. That's where the behavioural investing comes in. I think I don't know what you think. I think behavioural investing separates the the good from the great when it comes to investing. Your ability to hold your emotions in check is just so so important. So work on that. That's a great way to get started to avoid the kind of pitfalls that can hit young investors or new investors anyway. Second thing I'd say: look, in terms of should I add in different sectors or focus on the best investments regardless of sector? As Doc said, somewhere in between. If the best investments are all in banking, for example, even if they were, let's say, let's say the banking sector was screamingly cheap, right? I still wouldn't say to you load up your portfolio with 80% bank stocks because, frankly, you might be wrong. And so while they might seem like the best investments, let's say they don't turn out to be, you've probably taken on way too much risk. You've exposed yourself to one sector, which if it goes well, you're a genius. If it goes well, you feel terrible. Either way, it's not a great way to start investing or even build a portfolio. So thinking about that, yes, focus on the best investments, but do it in a way that gives you at the end a diversified portfolio of stocks. It doesn't doesn't expose you to too much risk in one particular style or another. If you love supermarket stocks, don't buy every supermarket stock. If you love medical technology, don't just buy every medical technology stock, right? Because regulations can change, market conditions could change. Just, you just don't need to. And so you're, you're always better to say, give yourself some diversification, not as the primary objective, but as a secondary objective as you add. By the time you're ready to buy your fifth bank stock, you probably should think, well, I thought banks were a good investment. I've got a couple already. I won't add more to that just because it doesn't make sense to take on that extra risk. There's simply no value in that from your portfolio's perspective. Go and diversify. Look somewhere else. So I'd say go quality first, but with diversification well and truly in mind. Does that do the job, Doc? That just definitely do the job. Definitely. Beautiful. But great question, Motley Fool fanboy, and we love the name. Thank you very much. Value stocks. Market. Stock market. Index. Share market. This is Motley Fool Money. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. 
All right, next one comes from Peter Thompson on Twitter, mate. He says, hi, guys. Love the podcast, Nudge Nudge. Mm-hmm. There's a theme here, mate. Does you? I'll move on. Yeah. <laughs> I saw your uh, post read Dulux and was wondering what your thoughts are on the prospects of the stock moving forward. General advice, of course, but if someone was already an owner for some time, would this be the time to sell or hold? Now, Dulux was spun out of, I want to say, was it CSR back in the day? Been in the market for a little while now. Um, obviously, it's being taken over by someone, right? Was right. It? So this is the yeah. this is the this is the big story. So the the kind of the takeover story of you know do you want to hold or do you want to kind of sell into a takeover is the bigger the bigger question. I think that it's worth turning our minds to. If you've got a company that's kind of the subject of a takeover bid, mate, what how, how do you think about your positioning of that company given the given the takeover bid that's in play? Let's say let's say you you've you've got I'll, I'll say Apple just for fun of it. Let's say Apple's going to be bought out by Google. And and the shares jump. You know, Google's going to pay three hundred dollars a share. The shares jump to two hundred ninety six dollars. Are you saying, well, I'm going to hold there and try and get the rest? Do you say, well, I'll take the money now and run? How do you think about your holding in the context of a takeover? That's a horrible example, but we'll play with that example. <laughs> Sorry, mate. It should be the other way. I, around. I wasn't. I wasn't deliberate. Okay, let's let's do that around. I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, trying to, I'm not trying to cause problems. No, 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 let, 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 let's let's stick with that example. <laughs> right. uh, I'm having uh, I'm having a bit of fun here. Deal, deal. Um, so. I think there are a couple of things. One is I would first evaluate, well, you know, these guys from Google are willing mm-hmm. to pay me 300 right now. The shares are 200 something right now. Yep. How do I feel about that? Yep. Right. And, you know, uh, of course, along with that, I'll assess the probability that the Apple board is going to mm-hmm. say yes. Mm-hmm. Right. Now, if I think it's a fairly good price and I, I feel that Apple board is going to you know, say yes eventually, mm-hmm. um, then the question becomes, well, you know, do I want to wait for the $4 more to materialize you know what is that time value of that four dollars for me and that helps me make the decision in most cases i would not worry about three four dollars on a three hundred dollar you know it's like one you know one percent right right um i would take the money now um and then if the deal falls through in that case then uh then you know i might get apple back at 200 and i can get back into and i actually made 100 bucks you know close to 100 bucks profit right uh if if not then i only lost four bucks that's the way i would think about it if um, yeah, so th- th- that's my most of the time my rational. Sometimes mm-hmm. what happens is you might own a stock that you know you've been umming and ahhing, <laughs> and you know, and you know, and maybe the mar- most of the market is also feeling that way. Then you would see that the price actually does not come close mm-hmm. to the you know maybe the company is offering three hundred, and um, and your price was at two hundred, but the stock actually only moves to two sixty. Yep. I would say that's a great time to get out. Right. Okay. <laughs> because, uh, you know, uh, you wanted to get out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You've been given an opportunity to get out. The market is also uncertain about it happening. I would actually at that point say, well, you know, I, you know, in the balance of probabilities, I'm actually going to get out of this yeah. thing. Yep. Um, so those are sort of the two kind of scenarios I would I would think about it. If, if, if it's a company that the board is going to say no and the price is nowhere close to mm-hmm. uh, what I think it should be, <laughs> right. then it's a fairly simple decision. Do nothing and yep. see how it plays out. Yep. I think that's I think that's the that's the hardest one for me is that scenario where you're not really sure what's going to come next. So we had a similar example relatively recently with Crown and with Win Results, right? Win mm. came and said, hey, we want to buy Crown. It was in the paper. The company confirmed that the shares shot up. Yeah. And then- 24 hours later, Wynn said, oh, yeah, you guys talked about it and you sort of told the market about it. So right. we're actually out of here. We're, we're going home. And the shares fell. Now, they didn't fall as far as the original price because the market's saying, well, okay, no, Wynn's interested. Maybe they'll come back. Maybe they won't. Mm-hmm. So at some kind of risk-adjusted level, at some sort of probability, probability level, it's worth more than it used to be because we know that the international guys are interested. Mm-hmm. But it's not worth as much as it was when we thought the bid was almost certainly going to go ahead. 
So the shares kind of settled back to somewhere in between. Mm. There are there's a there's a a school of thought which talks about kind of arbitrage opportunities, which is okay. Let's take your Apple example. If you knew that Google was almost certainly going to go ahead, Apple's shares were at a discount. Well, why not take it's easy much free money, right? Why mm. not, why not, why not buy it two ninety six and and take the three hundred when it comes? It's effectively risk free cash. Why wouldn't mm. you do it? And the answer to my mind, and, and uh, yeah, I'm pretty I'm pretty keen on this one is just simply that you don't know whether the bid's going to go ahead or not. Mm. And so, at some level. Or if the shares are already up, you're getting you're getting a free gift. Yep. Now, some people will say, "Well, hang on, let's take let's let's make the price a little bit bigger." If it was 250 bucks and Apple was offering or Google was offering 300, then there's a big gap there, right? Yep. And so the question is, well, if I sell now and I lose the 50 bucks they're going to pay me eventually, yeah, I miss out on that money. Yep. And so this is this is a, we talk about behavioural biases again. This is this is where behavioural biases come in, right? Our our fear of missing out. Yeah. What if I miss that fifty bucks? Versus, well, it was two hundred. I've got fifty extra bonus. Yeah. So two hundred goes to two fifty. They're going to pay three hundred. Yeah. That's kind of a well. What do I do? Right? Do I right. if I if I sell now, I miss the fifty. If I don't sell now and the deal doesn't go ahead, I lose the fifty. Yeah. So where do I go? And this is where from from most investors, the the fear of missing out, that kind of idea of I'm going to hold on just get the maximum price, the greed kind of takes over. Yeah. And I have to say, most of the time. In my experience, you're better off just simply taking what's on offer, taking with it because the market's pretty good at pricing these things, right? Mm. So, if it was a three hundred dollar offer and the shares were at two fifty, that's because the market's saying, "Well, we don't know for sure whether or not it's going to go ahead." And in that scenario, you could wait for the extra fifty and then the shares fall, or you could sell out and the shares might rise. Either way, the market's getting the probability mostly right most of the time. So, mm. as a matter of course, and particularly we were talking about you know time value of money, if I've got to wait two weeks, three months, six months for the money. I'd much rather simply take the money off the table, bank the profit, and go and reinvest that money in my next best idea, rather than trying to pay silly buggers with the arbitrage. When everyone else in the market's also trying to make the same bets with you on a on a known range of outcomes, it's simply probability assessment. If you have a better ability to forecast probability than everyone else in the market, then maybe play that game. If not, every better every chance you're better off taking the money and going and finding your next best idea. Cool. Real money advice from real people, not just a couple of dicks with a Porsche. Get more at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. This question came to us by a direct message in a couple of uh, in a couple of different uh, messages, so I'll try and read them through. It says, G'day, boys. Uh, love your show, by the way. I'm a relative new listener. Well, excellent. Thanks both for the praise and for listening. Um, hopefully, you'll do us a favor and, and tell your friends. That we, that'd be lovely. Um, but thank you, for, thank you for, for sending the message. I was just looking at a report which showed what groups the major shareholders are from e.g. institutional, inside, general public, and private company ownership. This company doesn't say what company is. This company is 56% general public. And it got me thinking, what is the right mix? Is there one? Would love to hear your thoughts on you two clever gentlemen. Gee, that's nice. There's a bit of extra praise. See, that's that's real praise, mate. That's That's not arbitrary kind of insert praise. That's, you know, that's careful use of, thoughtful use of adjectives. Yeah, I love it. it. Anyway, so keep up the good work and the the thumbs up. Uh, It's a really good question. So, this, you know, so general public here basically means retail investors. Mom and dad investors, right? Mom and dad, yeah, People us. like us. Yeah. So the institutional investors are largely the big managed funds. So think about the likes of the big banks, the big investment banks, the big fund managers, Platinums and the Magellans and that kind of stuff. The big guys, the big boys who go and spend lots and lots of money and own meaningful stakes in, in these big companies. Might own 4 or 5% of a, of, a, of a big company, maybe 10 or 15% of a smaller company. Um, they're the institutional investors. General public is us. Insiders are people like managers, so CEOs, chair, senior senior executives, that kind of stuff. When it comes to the mix, mate, some companies are majority general public owned. Some So Telstra's probably a good one. Telstra's got more retail shareholders than any other company in the country from memory. Hmm. On the other hand, you've got companies that are 
a simple example would be Virgin Australia, right, where 80% of the company is owned by the other big airlines. Mm. Um, so big, big institutional ownership. Uh, how do you think about the mix there? Does it, does it matter? Do we care? What are the pros and cons of, of being in those sort of companies? You know, honestly, this is one of the last things I probably look, even if, if I'm paying careful attention to. And, okay. and if I'm looking at it, and most of the time I'm actually looking to see whether there's insider or other sort of institutional alignment. And when I say institution, I don't mean... Um, Super funds or, you know, managed okay. funds. What I mean is that, you know, are there like, for example, is there another investment company? Is is it like, is there Solpaths, for example, on board, right? Mm -hmm. um, that to me would be a different sort of backing. Okay. So see, put simply, I look at insider ownership and smart backing right, and okay. not necessarily just any institution because not every institutional backing is smart backing right right right, right? so that, that's what i would look for uh, in and then maybe you know the other thing to keep in mind is the the share of retail versus insiders versus you know, institutional money a lot of it depends also on mandates right mm -hmm. so institutions have mandates they might have a mandate to invest above a certain threshold below right. a certain threshold with certain liquidity and so on and, and just to be clear those mandates come almost from themselves most of the time so yeah. if i'm a fund i'm going to start the scott phillips large cap fund and as part of that i'm going to say i'm only going to invest in stuff over a billion dollar market cap exactly or i'm a small cap tech fund so I'm only going to invest in companies less than two hundred million dollars that only that are only tech. Exactly. So that's that's the mandate approach. Yeah. So if the if the mandate is there, so a lot of the mandate comes into play, which you know you'd see that many small companies actually tend to have um, higher retail ownership relative to maybe right. uh, the bigger ones, right? And that's a you know, that's a part function of mandate. Yes. So it's not to me as I said, you know, um, insider and smart backing is the most important thing. Mm -hmm. If there is a particular fund house which is can be thought of as a smart backing, right, right, then that. It's basically part of smart backing. If there's a fund manager you followed you thought was a great fund manager, all of a sudden they took a yeah. stake in a particular company. That's smart. You'd backing. be more interested in it than otherwise. Yeah. yeah. Nice. I'm gonna I'm gonna add a couple of thoughts, mate. The first thing I would say is that generally speaking, big institutional holders tend to only invest in big companies, mm. kind of by definition, because if you're managing a billion dollars of, of shareholder funds, it's not worth you buying shares in a ten million dollar company because you can't buy enough of them to make a difference without going over the mandatory threshold for actually an acquisition, right? So if you if you buy more than 20% of any company in the ASX, you're forced by law to officially mount a takeover offer, whether mm. you want to or not. If you own more than 20% of the shares, other than with some so-called creep provisions, which we'll go into another day, mm. um, you, you, you're kind of mandated to do that, right? Now, if you've got a $10 million company, you can't buy more than 20% of the shares, in other words, $2 million bucks worth. If you manage a billion dollars, you're not going to make $2 million investments in little you know, tin pot companies, right? You're going to be looking only at the big end of town. You've only got so much attention, so much time, so much resource. You're going to spend your time and money on that stuff. So to, by, almost by definition, the larger a company is, the more likely it is to have a large institutional shareholder base. But on the flip side, the smaller it is, the more likely it is to have retail invest, individual investors involved. Mm -hmm. I completely agree with your insider piece, Doc. I think that's, that, that's the far more interesting piece is simply how invested are the current management and board and sometimes past founders or other other shareholders, how involved are they? How invested are they? And again, not in a percentage of the business because Graham Turner, for example, has a smaller stake of Flight Center than a new startup CEO. I can't think of a good one, but a new startup CEO would have of their own company because it's already small. The fact that Flight Center is now about 30 times the size it was when it was listed uh, and they've done some capital raising and other things means that Screwstone simply has a lower percentage of the shares in total. He might have, I don't know, pick a number, I don't know, another number, 10% of the company, for example. That's pretty large. Another guy <laughs> might have 60% of his other company. Mm. Now, 60% is better than 10. It's bigger than 10 in some senses, mm. but the size of the company also matters, right? 60% of a million-dollar company versus 10% of a 
$3 billion company, mm -hmm. very, very different numbers. So mm -hmm. it matters not so much the percentage of the shares owned by the CEO, but the value of those shares relative to his or her other wealth. Mm. And that's important. Lastly, I would say to some degree, I have a, I have a slight preference. It's probably it's not even a decision making preference, Matt. It's probably just a, an investor insight kind of um, conversation. But generally speaking, institutional money is way less sticky than retail money. In other words, if you're if you're an institutional shareholder, if you're a fund manager or something, you've got monthly, quarterly, half yearly, yearly targets, right? And you're much more likely to turn over your portfolio many, many, many times. In fact, most big funds have a share turnover more than 100%. In other words, they effectively roll over their entire portfolio every single year chasing the next big thing. Now, if you're a company with an institutional shareholder, there's a chance they're not going to hang around very long. They're either going to increase shares or decrease shares. They're going to be really active and all over the place. And if you're a company CEO, you want shareholders who are going to stick with you for the through thick and thin, right? Companies that, and Berkshire Hathaway is a great example of this. Warren Buffett's cultivated a shareholder base. Apple's actually really, Tesla's even a good one. Um, they've cultivated a shareholder base of people who believe in what the company's doing. And so if you're a Tesla shareholder, if you're a Berkshire Hathaway shareholder, uh, to some degree, Seek is kind of like that a little bit here. Um, other companies are 1-300 Smiles, for example, are put in the same basket. These are people who know the company well. They're going to stick with it through thick and thin. And so the company can then afford to think more long-term because they don't have to worry about the short-term expectations of their shareholders. And as a retail investor, as a, as a mum and dad investor as we are, I kind of prefer those businesses that have the luxury of thinking long-term and not having to worry about the short-term knee-jerk reactions of shareholders because they will make those uh, objections felt, right, on a, on a regular basis. If you get a phone call from your 5% shareholder who says, mate, your share price is down you know, 5% last week, what are you doing to fix it? Rather than someone who says, I know the share price is down, but I trust you, I believe in you, I'm here for the next 10 years, go and do your best. That's why that's the value of having a large retail shareholder base. It's also the value, frankly, of large insider ownership because there's simply less requirement for that company to get dragged back and forwards on the basis of simply someone's whim who's on a three-month quarterly number trying to get their shareholder bonus, for example, as a fund manager. Motley Fool Money. For more, go to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Next one from Regan. Regan says, hi, Scott and Doc. I'm a subscriber to Motley Fool Share Advisor. Good man. And a regular listener of the podcast. It helps pass the time during the weekly lawn mowing and gardening ritual. I'm not sure, is that, is that praise or is that kind of like, well, it'd be boring. Otherwise, I guess it's just slightly less boring now. Uh, still, you know. Do we want to be help pass the time or do we want to be like like active, you know, really keen listening? Uh, I'm okay. He, maybe, he's okay? A, maybe he's a great multitasker. It just worries me, Regan, if he didn't have the lawn mowing, maybe he wouldn't listen to us at all. That's what I'm worried about. That's, that's true. That's maybe, true. maybe we're just there because he's got lawn mowing to do. But maybe he's into multitasking. Let's yeah, just think right. about that. That'll make us Regan, feel better. You may, you may not buy a unit, mate. You must always have a backyard because we need the listening. He <laughs> uh, says, hopefully there's enough praise to get my question answered. So it turns out that's we're, we're, we're a low bar, mate. Let's be honest. Very low. <laughs> All right. I have a question around dollar cost averaging, portfolio building, and making ongoing contributions. Cool question. Here we go. You regularly mention on the podcast investing in 12 to 15 companies. We've talked about that. To create a diverse portfolio. We've talked about that. Mm -hmm. Not taking four banks as a diversification either. Oh, good man. Mm -hmm. And seeking to do that as quickly as practical. Mm -hmm. Let's say I have access to a large sum of money. <laughs> Lucky you. Mm -hmm. uh, and wish to dollar cost averages regularly into a basket of companies over the next 12 months. Then thereafter, contribute a regular monthly amount. How would you go about building the portfolio of 12 to 15 companies and then making the regular contributions? Should I simply divide the lump sum by 12 and pick one company a month that I like for the long term and then subsequently pick one from the core holding each month for the regular contribution? I'm curious to know what approach you would recommend in a general sense and how much you would allocate to particular stocks to achieve suitable diversification. 
Man, that's a good question. How do you then go about deciding where to make your regular contributions so as to maintain that diversification? Thanks for your time. Keep up the good work. If you answer the question, a five-star rating might be coming your way. Tell you what. <laughs> he, he knows the way to our heart, doesn't he? It's, it's Regan, a, you can, you can ask us questions anytime, mate. Five-star ratings. We're, we're all about five-star ratings. So I'm going to hold you to that promise, mate. I want confirmation after this you have actually given us that five-star rating. But uh, we will assume you're a man of your word and we'll go on and answer your question. Lots, lots there. So we've talked a little bit already about building that portfolio yeah. as quickly as possible. If you've got a big, big lump sum and then regular contributions, how do you think about the lump sum in the context of building a portfolio from scratch? So this is a tough question, actually. So it? it's a really <laughs> it's a tough one, question. Yeah. It's a good one and a tough question. So, so again, you know, depends. If I'm given the lump sum, one of the issues with trying to I wouldn't. Actually, I would try to spread spread the money investment over some period of time, not a lot okay. of time. Yep. But uh, so he over, said, buy maybe one a month for twelve months. Would you do something like that? Yeah, something like that might be okay. Um, so you know what I would do? Like if I have a love and some, I would invest some right away and then spread the rest over oh, okay. over over some period of time. Maybe yeah, both. Okay. Yeah, I'll do both. Um, largely because of what I'm trying to avoid is you know I don't want to be uh, so from a psychological you know a lot of these things are psychological as you know, and, and behavioral right. Yeah. So it would be really crappy if I bought invested all the money in the best companies I could think yep. and maybe over the long term they're still just fine which is all which is all rationally correct. Yes. But if the market then went down twenty percent <laughs> the next day, <laughs> right. it would be really crappy. Right. And, so, I'm, and, so, I'm, and, and pardon my use of the word crappy, but it, it, it would really. <laughs> I, think, I think it's justified here. It is really really bad. If you lost twenty percent of a lump sum tomorrow, that to, would be crappy. I yeah. You just think about it. You know, if it's like a gift or something, <laughs> or you know, a pass yeah. me down money, yeah. it would be. Really, so I would you know invest some. Now, of course, hypothetically, if you'd invested it two years ago and the shares fall twenty percent tomorrow anyway, you're still losing. Exactly the same amount of money, but yeah. as you say, it's that. No, that's that's why it's important, right? It's a really good example because the the the, the reality would be exactly the same. The, yeah. the, the facts would be no different. If you'd have invested, let's call it two hundred grand, right? If you don't, if you'd invested hundred grand five years ago, you now have two hundred grand today. Yeah, and it fell twenty percent tomorrow. Yeah, versus just getting two hundred grand today and investing it today yeah. and falling twenty percent tomorrow, the math is exactly the same. Yeah. But the feeling, the emotions, and frankly, the, your ability to sleep at night is so different. This is where behavioral investing is so, so, yeah, so important. Or just look at your partner and you know, <laughs> in the eye and say, "Hey, oh, twenty percent uh, less rich now." Straight, straight to the pub after work on that one. <laughs> exactly. So, so it's all those things. I think yep. so. That, so that's a great idea to actually spread. I wouldn't okay. spread it over too much. I, you know, I don't frankly don't have a. Again, it would depend on the amount of money. Um, yep. uh, you know, but for two hundred k, I don't know. Maybe I'd invest hundred k and then spread the remaining hundred k okay. over over a period of say six months or oh, so okay. six to maybe 12 months is what I would try to spend it out yep. um, again largely for psychological reasons um, and then yeah I think the, and, and the reason I'm saying I would, I would take a chunk of money invested now is to get to that 12 to 15 actually I'd do more uh, than 15 okay. so I would, I'd probably do like 20 companies that okay. I really like and I'll put my money on that you know weighted based on how I feel right. comfortable about them because if you only do if you do nothing now and do one a month for 12 months yeah. after six months you've only got six companies right yeah and you, you've got a lot of volatility with that right. And again, the volatility, while it's not a problem, it's just psychologically yeah, difficult. Okay, good call. Right. So that's what I, like I would that. do. I would, I would yep. basically start building a portfolio and then with the remainder of the money, add to my best idea at that time, which could be from the portfolio, outside the portfolio. Uh, you know, like people said, like, you know, after 30, 30 companies, you could have more or less depending upon your strategy. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, that's what I would do. That's fascinating. I like that. Idea. I, I, so I've in the past done a couple of things for a couple of family members. And in both cases, I've actually... Because I, I've been doing this a little while, and to your point about being kind of behaviorally kind of ready for it, I've invested the entire amount 
in, in one in one fell swoop, literally in the space of a day, I think it was, for, in one case. So it was a very large superannuation um, reinvestment and I invested the whole lot in one day. And that could have gone really, really badly. <laughs> I, may have, I may have had a, a family member on the phone with me uh, remonstrating with my, my poor decision making. Uh, but it, I think to your point, rationally, I could do that because I felt comfortable enough that, and this was, this was for income rather than growth. So I felt comfortable with the yield being offered at the time. The capital value was of less short-term, medium-term importance. And so I was happy that I was getting, I think it was 5.5% across the portfolio. That was that was kind of the entire approach, right? The equivalent of buying an annuity almost upfront. That's just you get what you get, and you don't get upset type stuff. So that was that was easy. I really like your idea of investing half to make sure you diversify upfront. I think it's a really really smart approach rather than just just starting from scratch and adding one position a month or, or whatever it is over twelve or eighteen months. I think that's a, a really smart way to start. Um, so I can't top that, man. I reckon that's a that's a really really smart approach. I would say for what it's worth, the only thing I would add to that to some degree is just begin with the end in mind to some component, right? So think about in five years' time, what do you want the portfolio to look like? And kind of work back from there to some degree. To your point, Doc, you don't want to have so many companies you can't keep track of them unless you're using something like one of our services, coincidentally, um, to help you kind of, you know, keep it keep across the- use our services, definitely. There is. That was a yeah. share advice member, which is great. But you know, if you're getting our, if you're getting our regular advice on those companies, we're telling you when to buy, hold, and sell, or at least advising you. Um, that that that's one way to kind of help the, the the kind of research burden. Otherwise, you know, I, I kind of am inclined to 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 completely approach, to completely agree with your approach. I will say that you know, our, our co-founder David Gardner says the market goes up more than it goes down, and 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 you know, over time, any money you leave and don't invest today, there's every probability over time that the longer you take to invest, it, the lower your potential future returns. A million dollars today not invested. If the market goes up an average of ten percent a year, if you wait a year to invest that money, you're possibly doing yourself out of some out of some dough. On the flip side, of course, the market falls about one year in three, and so it's entirely possible if you if you get unlucky, um, it's a it's a it's a tough year. So I think I think Doc's point is dead right. Investing over time is almost dollar cost averaging to some degree by definition. Um, I think building a portfolio, and then once you've kind of got a reasonable base, then I completely agree that investing in just your best idea as you go, I think that's the best approach, right? If if I wouldn't be trying to build, I wouldn't be trying to diversify deliberately outside about 20 or 25 companies buy more if you like them buy the best ones you've got if you end up with 40 then so be it because they're the best ideas at any point in time but i wouldn't try and diversify in and of itself after about the 20th stock after that point you're investing your 21st or 22nd best idea that gets tough to try and justify so i think that kind of 20 to 25 stocks as a, as pure diversification is enough after that to put your money towards your best ideas and build from there just being careful of course of the portfolio allocation at some point if you get one company that does incredibly well then fantastic but if it ends up being 12, 15, 20% of your portfolio, again, from a behavioral perspective, some of us are okay with that, some aren't, uh, but you're much better off just being thoughtful about maybe you don't want to add to a position that's already 12 or 15% of your portfolio, even if it is your best idea, um, simply because if that does move one direction or other meaningfully, it can cause you some heartburn. And again, uh, looking at the partner and explaining why your, your top position has fallen by 20% can be a, a little bit of a tough ask, Doc, I reckon. Mm-hmm. Get more Motley Fool money advice at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Another question from Harold. Harold says, G'day, guys. I just wanted to run something past you. As I previously heard you mention, this is me, in a podcast, in a discussion for clients on various investments that you had a dabble slash experiment investment in Bitcoin. Could you please advise how your experiment panned out? I reckon you planned this one, Doc. I, You're trying to make me look I, bad, aren't you? I'm such a good person. I don't <laughs> do such things. <laughs> Can you please advise how your experiment panned out uh, and if you think things have changed for the better more recently as Bitcoin did drop from their great heights? If you think it's worth a small punt, could you please recommend the best procedure or broker and which Bitcoin or blockchain trading commodity, e.g. Bitcoin, Ethereum, etc.? I've seen a lot of promotional ads on news sites recently, even quoting Andrew Forrest and Harry, Harry Trigiboff. 
However, these appear to be false and outright scams. By the way, I'm a member of Motley Fool Dividend Investor. Excellent. Thank you. And of course, I receive your emails as well, and I'm aware of your media profile. I do respect your good reputation in the finance and equity market industry. Yours sincerely, Harold. Harold, that's very kind of you to say. Um, I, I, we like to think we're at least credible. We do our best. And there, was a, there was a lot of nuanced praise That was lovely, there. wasn't it? Yeah. Lots of adjectives. I love it. Oh, I love it. That was great. I particularly like my good reputation. No, no Harold, we, we really do appreciate <laughs> it, mate. Thank you for, thank you for the kind words. Um, you know, the Motley Fool does try both at a company level and as individual investors, we try and do our best to be worthy of that praise. And so we, we appreciate that uh, that's the way you feel about us. We, we'll, we'll do our best to always deserve that sort of praise. Mate, on Bitcoin, I will... So my, I put a hundred bucks in Bitcoin. I want to say almost two years ago now, Doc. I think maybe even longer. I can't remember. Yeah, you, well, don't you have it on your phone? Well, right? so, it's on your phone. So here's the thing: his money is yeah. on his phone. Also, well, here's the thing: ever since, so, firstly, long-term listeners will know that I actually can't sell because the wallet I use doesn't allow you to sell your Bitcoin. Right. So there right. is that. On top of that, I've changed phones since, and and so little do I care about my Bitcoin investment. I haven't even bothered putting the app on my new, on my new phone. So there is there is hundred ish dollars worth of Bitcoin out there somewhere. Um, I was up about thirty or forty percent at one point, and then oh, I was wow. I, last I checked, which was a few months ago, I was still up. Although I'm not sure where Bitcoin's been since. Um, I will say for, for listeners who are new, um, this was it, there's a so a Warren, long longish story. I'll make it short. Warren Buffett runs Berkshire Hathaway. We know that. Tom Gaynor is a name that most won't have heard of. He's the investment manager of a business called Markel, often called a baby Berkshire. And Markel has a reasonably concentrated investment portfolio, but it also has a really, really long tail of lots of different little investments. And and Markel does that, Tom Gaynor does that because he says, there's nothing like skin in the game to keep you focused on what you're doing. In other words, it's what well, I find it so if we talk about, um, let's pick a company, mate, let's pick Bellamy's because we talked about that before. Um, if I own Bellamy's, even if I own a couple of bucks worth of Bellamy's, right, I'm more likely to see it regularly, care about it, pay attention than if I don't own it. If I just have it on a watch list somewhere, I'm probably going to pay a huge amount of attention unless I'm super disciplined. But if it's in my portfolio and I see it when I check my portfolio statement every week or so, um, I'm probably going to see how it's moving. I'm probably going to be a little more interested in its news, research, because owning something just psychologically, again, has a really big impact on how we feel about stuff, including shares. So he, he goes about and he buys a whole lot of stuff that he might be interested in, in topping up just in case you know, following it makes it a little bit more easy to understand, a little bit easier to, to follow, and then notice when there's opportunities that exist in the stock. So with that preamble, that's kind of why I bought 100 bucks worth of Bitcoin. I wanted to try the the app. I wanted to understand the commodity. I wanted to follow along a little bit closely because, frankly, I don't follow it that closely at all. In fact, I don't, I don't know what the current price is. Maybe you can look it up while I'm jabbering away and tell me. Um, but basically, you know, that, that's been the Bitcoin story. The Bitcoin, Bitcoin was seen as an opportunity for a replacement of gold for some people, a currency for other people, uh, just a straight-out speculative investment for others who just said, well, hey, when everyone's using Bitcoin, it's got to be more expensive, so I'll buy some now. Uh, and I bought some just to just to follow along, basically, in that in that story. Um, it was a running joke for a little while that AI couldn't sell, and I still don't think I can on my app, although I haven't got it on the phone. Um, but also, yes, it was just, just, just a bit of fun to chat about. I've got to say, Harold, I'll, Doc, I'll ask you to answer in a sec, but for my view, Bitcoin is not an investment asset at the moment. I don't think it likely ever will be. Um, I love the idea of blockchain as an idea, although even that's still got limited application in my mind. I think people are way too over the top of everything it could possibly do, um, simply because it's not it's not often the best or most productive way to do most of the things that it's being cited for. So could the land titles office records be on, on blockchain? Yes, but... We have a land titles office, right? Why would you bother? Um, we have currency. We have banks. Um, the bank record keeping is fine. We don't really need a blockchain to improve that necessarily, although some would argue that it could be improved. And then at an asset level, is Bitcoin or Ethereum or Ripple or I can't even think of the other ones now, um, are they really going to be the next big thing in currency or assets? I, I kind of don't see how, right? Like if I was in, 
if I was in a third world country and I had a decent amount of cash or a decent amount of assets and I was worried about war or famine or some sort of strife, I probably would put it in Bitcoin, frankly, because it means I can, I can you know, put it in Bitcoin in whatever dollars I'm earning and then transfer the US dollars if I go somewhere else, right? So it's, it's much more transportable than something like gold. So if you're comparing gold with Bitcoin and you want that kind of easy transportability, it's harder to carry a couple of kilos of gold over a, over a border and then maybe you get searched, maybe you don't, maybe you get caught, maybe you don't. Um, you know, I, I get the value of a digital asset. Great for criminals, by the way, for the same reasons. Um, <laughs> but for, for us, you know, mere mortals, I just I just don't think in a developed world with a great system like we have, I just don't see any need to own Bitcoin and I don't think it's a reasonably reliable and frankly forecastable or even, you know, valuable quality, you know, high quality investment asset. So, Harold, I just finish up before I throw a doc. I, I wouldn't do it. Um, I've got 100 bucks in it, just literally for 100 bucks for the sake of following along. If you want to do that, by all means, do that. I wouldn't be putting any meaningful amount of money towards it. No one can tell you where it's going to go next. If you get rich, you might feel lucky. If you get poor, you might feel lucky or unlucky, sorry. Um, I don't think there's any, there's no, there's no reasonable way to assess its future. And so you're literally speculating. You might as well go and put some money on the dogs. Doc. Well, the only thing I'm going to say is the Bitcoin price right now is five thousand four hundred and twelve dot seven six, I guess, US dollars. That feels low. Um, I'm, pro- I'm probably losing money. I think it, <laughs> in one year, I yeah. think in one year it has gone down from nine thousand eight hundred forty-five dot five four. That's a lot. To sits down fifty percent. <laughs> um, that's a lot. Even after being down so much, the market cap, I guess, yep. that's the total number of bitcoins multiplied by the price of Bitcoin. Yes, it's ninety-six billion US billion dollars that's fascinating and look here's the thing right so so some and this is speaking of investor psychology some people listening will say the price is down it must be a bargain (laughs) other people say the price is down who would buy that I'll wait till the price goes back up Um, and half of you will think one way and half of you will think the other by the way well hopefully about a third the other third will probably thinking I don't care what it does I'm not buying it Um, maybe that's more than a third with some luck so look you know maybe you think well it's down 50% maybe that's a buying opportunity well the world's full of stocks that that, you know there's an old line that uh, an old colleague of ours Matt Josh used to used to share with us which was um, um, you know, what do you call a stock that was down 90%? Oh, sorry, is down 90%? A stock that was down 80% and halved from there. So, right, it's, it's still possible. You think it's down 80%, how much further can it fall? The answer is, well, the rest of the way, quite frankly. So I wouldn't be I wouldn't be using the Bitcoin history to tell you anything other than it's now worth less than it was. That, you know, where can it go next? Who knows? There is no law that says it must continue on the same trend um, or, frankly, or that it should reverse, right? Neither is necessarily true. When it was down 20%, you might have said, oh, it's a great time to buy. Now it's fallen another 30% since then. So just be very careful. I would I would stay well away from Bitcoin as an investment. As I said, follow along if you want to. Buy a couple of bucks worth of Bitcoin if you want to have some degree of skin in the game just to follow along. But don't waste your investment money. There's many, many better places to invest. Frankly, lower risk and higher probability of return places to invest. I will say quickly too, just because Harold mentioned it, um, there is plenty of scammy Bitcoin stuff around. Um, David Koch has been listed as being a Bitcoin supporter. Um, Lisa Wilkinson might have even been that list. There's, there's, you know, there's plenty of scammers who will grab a celebrity, say, so-and-so loves Bitcoin, click here to find out why. Um, ignore them, ignore them, ignore them. It is complete trash. It is rubbish. It is scamming. Um, it, unless you see the, the celebrity themselves actually making that, not just a picture of them, not just quotes attributed to them, unless you see them literally doing it, just say well and truly away. People are using their good name, and it's, it's, a, it's a crappy thing to do, quite frankly. I feel sorry for Koshi. He's a good guy, um, and he's being dragged through the mud with this sort of idea of David Kosh loves Bitcoin, which is, as I said, complete rubbish. Motley Fool Money. Financial advice for real people, not trust fund hippies. Sign up for the newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Mate, um, we're going to answer one more question. This one comes from James. He sent it via email. James says, uh, hi, Scott and Doc. Loving your podcast, and I think Doc is doing a great job. Finally, someone likes me. Well, no one said anything nice about, we didn't say anything nice about me. Well, it's, that's great. You know, we should just concentrate on... 
Loving your podcast. I think Doc yeah. is doing a great job. It's great. We awesome. Might, we might just move on, hey? <laughs> All right, I won't move on. He says, keep it up. I'm not an expert in stock trading. However, I would like to learn more about tools that allow me to short the NASDAQ that isn't too complicated with low fees. Please come on to the following points. Now, James goes to ask a whole lot of points, and they are really, really detailed. James, I hope you'll uh, I hope you don't mind if we if we just kind of truncate your questions only because there's some really specific numbers in there and specific data and all that kind of stuff. And could could you know could index Y do this and could company Z do that and all that kind of stuff? Way way too hard for us to try and address on uh, on a podcast where we're talking in um, in oral tones and not not showing numbers on pages that are easy for people to digest. So, uh, broad question, mate. So, how would you go about getting access to short the nasdaq and would you do it okay so i would so number one i would not short the nasdaq okay uh, um i'll hold that thought and ask you why in a second but if you wanted to do it how would you go about it so if if i wanted to short the nasdaq then i would use a derivative instrument okay okay and i would actually buy so it's the important thing buy okay. a put or buy basically a put. Right, okay. be long a put okay um, at a certain strike price, so let's say let's assume that uh, Nasdaq. You, you you can do that via an index. Mm-hmm. So let's say the Nasdaq 100 index. Let's say that's um, the code for that is NDQ here right. in the, on the ASX. Yes. Let's say that NDQ has puts and calls available, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and let's say the NDQ is trading at hundred dollars. Okay. If I wanted to short it. And I would say that, you know, and the only reason, I would actually not even short it, I would basically be a hedging strategy, okay. which is that I think maybe something short term is going to happen again, nobody can predict, but maybe yes. I have a very good hunch, yes. and therefore I want to do some hedging. Uh, then you could buy some puts, say, at 98, at a strike price of 98. So okay. that's, you know, that you, you would need more than a 2% movement to actually make something off it, because you're going to be paying, you're going to be paying for buying the puts you yep. might pay a few dollars maybe three four dollars so you actually need but maybe eight ten percent movement to actually make something off it in the time frame okay. of the options expiring that's something i found complica- sounded complicated sounded complicated it's very it's, complicated how do you get eight ten percent turn return on anything in any period of time let alone just to break even then make some more money for the exactly so this is really really hard okay. and i think those people who have a mandate so like professional money managers might have a mandate that you need to have a hedge yep and they would do it Okay. Like uh, because right, okay. it's in their mandate. Yep, yep, yep. Like in my mandate, in my mm-hmm. portfolio's mandate, there's no such thing as doing it. So you know, I've you know, I've done hedging in the past mostly in, as a way to learn about it. Yep. And just to learn about a tool, um, and I've not hedged my entire portfolio because doing that would be crazy. I've hedged a very small percentage <laughs> of the portfolio just to learn about various strategies. There are ways in which you can actually finance that uh, put buying okay. by selling a put in return. That, and, the, and the idea behind that is that you think that NASDAQ is right now overvalued, but maybe fell 15%, is not overvalued, and you're willing to buy the stock at that price, and therefore right. you can use that to finance okay. it. So you can do it this way. Um, Sounding pretty complicated. So it is complicated. It is, it is a complicated strategy. And okay, I'll, I'll let a little. So I've done this quite a few times to practice it. Okay. And I think of all the times I've done it, in terms of probability, I've only actually made money maybe 10% of the time. <laughs> That's, that's, so, not, that's not an overwhelming strategy. No, really, it's though. not. So right now, for example, I'm completely unhedged. I have no hedge as such. Mm-hmm. Um, Plus, quite frankly, trying to short growth stocks is, is a pretty good way to lose money, right? Yeah. Like, even if you're right fundamentally, you've got to be right within the time frame, as you said. And, yeah. and exuberance can go, even if you think the market is 20% overvalued today, 
it could well double from here before it comes back and it could take 12 months to do so. Yeah. That's a really, really tough thing to try and make some Yeah, so you need to know the top and you need to know when the top is going to happen. Both are very hard to figure Mate, if I could do that, there's better things to do with the oh, money than try and short yeah, the NASDAQ, it, right? Exactly. If I could figure that out, <laughs> I would be, I don't know, quad, you know, a billionaire. Yeah, yeah. So look, we're not, we're not saying you can't do it. It's uh, just times hard. And, and some people try to do it. The other thing is if you buy the short instruments, you ask about a thing called SQQQQ, which is short the NASDAQ index. Um, those things decay value wise anyway so you are you're running fast just to stay still right you're trying to run through a treacle to get yeah. to a point very very difficult thing to do um I, that's a 3x inverse that that yeah. that is like if, that only works if there is like a calamity it'll either make you a squillion or lose your squillion it's much yeah. more likely to lose your squillion yeah so i mean those people again you know if again, some funds might have it the requirement that they need to you know have a hedge and for them yeah. it's great <laughs> Relatively. Don't don't invest in a, a fund that has that head. It's my, it's my advice. All right. That's been a very long and very involved mailbag. But hopefully you've enjoyed it. Hopefully we've done you proud. Uh, and hopefully this week was a good week and the RBA did the right thing. Though we're not still sure yet. What? RB, doesn't RBA always do the right thing? Yes. But if, there we go. By yeah. definition. Yeah. We, congratulations on the RBA for doing the right thing. <laughs> we can say that with a whole lot of certainty. Yeah, we're long, we're, we're long RBA. We're long the RBA. <laughs> That's a good way to wrap it up. Speaking of wrapping it up, that does wrap us up. But before we go, don't forget you can and should subscribe to the Triple M Motley for Money podcast through iTunes or your favourite Android podcast app. And just because I said last week was Android powered, this week comes to you courtesy of Apple, I suppose. Mm. And if you like what we're doing, please do give us a big five-star rating on iTunes. Of course, a couple of you have promised it already, so we're sure that by the time we check a couple of minutes' time, you'll have already put that big five-star rating up. We thank you in advance for doing so. And if you haven't yet, hopefully we've guilted you into doing it because, frankly, we're all about the stars. Exactly. Leave us a rating. Tell your friends because they can use some foolish insight too. And don't forget, you can get more from us at www.fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Triple M. That's it for this week's Motley Fool Money. We'll be back next week live with another dose of foolish insight. Fool on. Fool on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.